Hey everyone, I'm Renee Bennett. Consider me the girl next door, having conversations that will help challenge and shape your worldview in a culture that has turned our moral compass upside down and inside out. To chat with me further, come join me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast. No topics are off limits. I'm really glad you're here. Now, on to today's episode. Hello guys, it's Renee here. Welcome to another episode of Girl Next Door Podcast and a big welcome to all of my new listeners. I can see that there's constantly new people popping over um, to Girl Next Door Podcast. I am really excited that you're here, so thank you for coming along today. This is the second part on a two-part episode that I've been doing on revival. So I would highly suggest that you go back and listen to last week where I um, we used the Asbury, what's what's just been happening in Asbury, the Asbury Theological uh, University over in Kentucky, which has been experiencing uh, a revival of sorts. And so we're going to have another look today at what's been happening there. But I would suggest that you go back and listen to last week because I just talked about five different ways that we can discern a revival. Um, but and, and they were just, um, you know, things such as looking at the fruit, the short-term and the long-term fruit, okay? But what I want to do today is go a little bit more detail and look back historically at a whole heap of revivals that have happened. And from that, to pull out 10 markers, 10 things where you can definitely see that these 10 things are always present in a true great revival. So judging from what you guys told me that you all thought revival was on Instagram when I asked you, I could see that we all between us only know bits and pieces. Like everyone could tell me one or two aspects of revival, but they really were only snapshots and didn't contain the full picture. So I can see why there's so much conversation and confusion around this. And if we're not sure what marks a true revival, then we're susceptible to be led down a garden path by anybody. So with so much talk of revival right now, It's important that we have some concrete things to go by to help us discern. And so that's what I want to help you with today. Now, I think if you're like me, uh, when you think of revival, I know when I think of revival, I think of the great revivals in history, right? Like the first one that comes to mind would be the Azusa Street revival for me. Now, I think it's important that we do help study these revivals of old um, so that we can see what it was that marked those revivals so that we can learn more about them. Not that every revival is the same, by the way, which I will get into in just a moment. But first, let me just go through the basic five greatest revivals uh, that have happened. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. There's many other revivals as well, but I thought if I could just take you through um, Uh, five great revivals, particularly that have happened um, around America. So the first one happened between the uh, 1730s and the 1740s. Now it happened in England and then that spread throughout the colonies and it was led by a man called Jonathan Edwards. Now it was through local teaching of Edwards and a few others that were also involved that people en masse were convicted of their sins and renewed in their need for Jesus. Now out of this came Charles Wesley. He was a part of this 
Uh, and from this, he wrote 6,000 hymns. How amazing is that? And another guy that was a part of this revival, his name was George Whitfield. He began an orphanage and preached to a million people, right? So all of those things, I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds like revival to me. Number two, the next revival, the Second Great Awakening, it's known as, happened between the 1820s and the 1850s in America and England. You will know probably the name of this guy, led by Charles Finney. Now, he was kind of like your fire and brimstone preacher, right? He started with this fiery message of repentance, and then all these people just started flocking to them, these meetings, and they actually had to construct a big tent uh, to hold large meetings. And these meetings, guys, went for weeks and weeks. He even has been known, he was well known for creating what's called a crying bench. Now, it's not so that people could go over there and be sad and emotional. This was where people who wanted to renew or, uh, or um, pre- you know, like give their lives, I guess, to Christ for the first time, they could go down to this bench and make a public commitment. Third big revival happened just after that in Chicago, 1875 to 1885. Now, the backdrop of this revival, no, honestly, I can see why a revival happened in this period of time, because it was the end of the Civil War in America um, and also right around the time of the great Chicago fire. So people were very vulnerable. Now, the man that led this one, you'll also know his name, D.L. Moody. Now, where did it begin? With a Bible study for street children. And that grew so big that even Abraham Lincoln, the president at the time, visited. And then D.L. Moody went on to preach to more than 100,000 million people. Like, how do you even do that? Did I get that wrong? 100,000 million. I don't need to check that number, but anyway, there you go. He preached to a lot of people. Fourth revival happened in the early 1900s. This is the Azusa, Azusa Street revival between 1906 and 1915. Now, this happened in Los Angeles, and uh, it was called the Azusa Street because it happened at a church in Azusa Street. And William J. Seymour is front and center of this revival. Now, this guy sometimes prayed for seven hours a day. And out of this was birthed what we now know as the Pentecostal movement. Now, it began when the Holy Spirit fell on a few people and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then it started from there. The fifth great revival happened a little bit after this between 1910 all the way through to the 1970s. You guys are going to know the names of these people. It was the 20th century revival, happened in American cities, but I would say it even spread here to parts of Australia. Uh, Notably, it happened in New York and LA. It began when Billy Sunday, who was a professional baseball player, turned to a preacher. He uh, delivered a very direct and powerful message of the gospel. uh, And then he went on to preach to 1.5 million people in month-long meetings. Now, he died in 1935, just after his death. Along came Billy Graham. He entered the scene and continued this. Uh, Now, this is a really good example, guys, of how some revivals can go over a very, very long period of time. Billy Graham started crusades in LA. He went on to hold more than 400 crusades in 185 countries with arena-sized crowds. He was on TV. um, And 
you know, there have actually been Billy Graham crusades here in Australia. Now, of course, there are other revivals, like you might have heard about the Welsh revival, which happened over in Wales in uh, 1904 to 1906, so just before the great um, uh, Billy Graham and Billy Sunday revival. So the guy that was known for starting that one was Evan Roberts. He was only 26 guys when this broke out, and apparently he had been praying for revival every day for 13 years. And so in other words, he was 13 when he started praying for revival. Now, apparently he was not even a good preacher. He was just full of faith and love and zeal and the Holy Spirit. So I've no doubt that you would agree with me that when you hear about those great revivals of of years gone by, that you'd be like, yeah, that's in my mind what a revival is. So Like I said, last week we talked about a few tools that we can use to discern revival. So it'd be a great idea to pause this and go back and listen. Now, one thing I did want to clarify, by the way, I talked about how potentially people um, can use revival as a marketing tool, but I just wanted to clarify, I'm not talking about when like... Uh, people uh, might brand a series of church nights, revival nights, right? Like most churches do that at some stage. We've done that at Youth Alive. We've done some young adults events and we call them revival nights. That's not the kind of marketing tool that I was talking about, okay? I was more referring to when people make claims that revival's breaking out somewhere, but really it's questionable as to whether actual revival is breaking out, but they seem to be saying it to draw a crowd, And as you can see from what I just shared, a true revival, you don't need to draw a a crowd, guys. The crowd comes naturally when it's a revival. All right, so I just wanted to clarify that. So now that we've talked about some of the great revivals in history, I want to share with you 10 different markers that you can use, which... um, and I, you know, I've really kind of studied up on this. These markers can be used to, to really discern um, a, a great revival, a true revival, like the ones that we've just talked about. All right, so here we go. First one, and it's really interesting. So I, I'm pretty sure you're going to find this fascinating. But number one, it is the Spirit of God alone that causes true revival, right? I just said that a second ago. It's not from a person conjuring it up or a person telling you, oh, look, revival's happening and trying to stir things up to draw a crowd, right? Now, it is only the Holy Spirit that can cause a true revival. Now, the Holy Spirit will use different ways and means, right? Like with Asbury, it was a bunch of students in a chapel. At Azusa Street, it was a few people baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Chicago revival with D.L. Moody began with a Bible study for children, But with all of these, they're Holy Spirit inspired, not man inspired. No human can force a major revival to happen. So if you see a person trying to force it, trying to control the narrative, working to make it happen, that's not how revival works. And by the way, I'm not talking about revivalists, okay? Because obviously each of these revivals had people like D.L. Moody and Charles Finney. They were true revivalists. So I want to just make that that separation there. Okay. I'm not talking about a revivalist. I'm talking about someone that just comes along where clearly they're trying to stir it up and make it happen in their own strength. Revival happens through the Holy Spirit and uh, definitely can um, be sparked because we are earnestly seeking God for his own sake, not for ministry success. 
And when we seek to be in revival uh, ourselves first, that is just like the ripest ground for God to move. But you can do all that. You can you can pray and earnestly seek God. It doesn't mean a revival will break out, but it definitely makes the ground ripe for it. Okay, so that's the first one. Only ever Holy Spirit inspired. Number two, the gospel is always preached, right? So, and and this one I think is pretty stock standard. Most places uh, you always see the gospel preached anyway. But the word of God has to be front and center of any revival, right? Like every one of those five revivals we spoke about had the word of God preached. And I'm talking about the pure gospel message, not some fancy pants, you know, message, the the pure gospel, our need for a savior, how we are sinners. Um, You know, in revival, there's a renewed understanding that it's not us who can save ourselves. It's not through our works. We're at the mercy of God and His grace. And when the gospel is preached, there is a response. There is always conviction, confession, and repentance. So that's what you're going to see. Number two, you're going to see the gospel preached, which is going to lead to conviction, confession, and repentance. Number three, there is always corporate prayer. So you will see big meetings where people are praying and confessing and consecrating their lives to God. You know, there's a a need in a revival, a desperation, a hunger for corporate prayer. And again, it's not something that has to be stirred up. It's just happens. People are hungry for it. There's an extraordinary prevailing prayer and it crosses the usual walls that divide Christians, right? Okay. Number four, another marker of revival is that they're never the same. Okay. There's no such thing as a copycat. Revivals are never the same. They might have all these markers, but there's so much creativity where no one revival is just like the last, right? So, In each new generation, this is what I love about God. In each new generation, a new method will arise that will fit that cultural moment. Like I look at Asbury and I'm like, yeah, this one did spread a lot over social media. That fits the culture of this generation. It was young people in a theological college. So it's always in response to the cultural moment. I mean, we've just been through a pandemic and we've just been through, you know, all sorts of stuff that's gone on. Our, our world has gone crazy right now. And so it seems fitting that something happened over in Kentucky with a bunch of students in response to what we've just been through to this cultural moment. You know, the second revival that I spoke about in the 1820s, that came about because the fabric moral of society was tattered and torn by sin. Uh, it was the revival that had the crying bench, right, where people would go and repent because they needed that. The Chicago revival, people were very vulnerable after the Civil War and the Great Chicago Fire. With the Billy Sunday and the Billy Graham revival, that was in response to the industrial age. So revivals are always different and they always fit the culture of the time. Number five, nominal Christians are converted. What do I mean by that? A nominal Christian is someone who is Christian by name, but not by nature, right? Like they might go to church to tick a box, but they've not really surrendered their lives to Jesus. Like at Easter time, when I drive past the Catholic school up the road, uh, where I know they have mass all the time, usually on most Sundays, there's not that many cars there, but all of a sudden come Easter or Christmas, it is like packed. There are, you can't even, you know, get a park on the street. So that's like your nominal Christians, Christian by name, not by nature. They profess Christian beliefs, subscribe to Christian ethics. Maybe they're even baptized, 
but they've never really understood the gospel and had a personal experience with Jesus. Well, during revival, it's those people that have a conversion experience. And um, every revival has this en masse with nominal Christians really, uh, truly having a, a conversion experience. Number six, lukewarm Christians get fired up, right? So we're talking not the nominals now. We're talking about the ones that, you know, they love God and they go to church and, um, you know, they do all the, maybe tick the boxes again and they uh, participate more than what a nominal Christian does. But these Christians during revival get completely set on fire. Their passion for God is reignited. They become deeply repentant of how they've been living and in their being in their lukewarm state, and they come alive spiritually as they experience the love of God. Number seven, non-believers or the unsaved are attracted to Christian community, and therefore we see salvation in remarkable numbers. Now, I mentioned this last week. This is definitely a sign of a true revival where non-believers are drawn in and the church grows at an amazing speed because what's happened is your nominal and your lukewarm Christians and your other Christians are fired up from the revival. They go out, they're sharing the love of God, they're sharing the salvation message and the unsaved are drawn in various ways uh, to the church. So if you would notice, most of these revivals that I talked about in uh, history had large tents because the churches couldn't contain the numbers of people that were coming back to Christ. So number eight, it always impacts society. So this is an important one, right? Revival should never be just within the four walls of a church. It always has a mass impact. So there was a revival in the UK where crime went down and pubs had to be shut down because no one was going. Uh, The American revival that happened in the 1700s, the one where Charles Wesley wrote the hymns, well, the Methodist movement came out of that and 6,000 hymns came out of that, right? In the Charles Finney revival of the 1800s, guess what? The anti-slavery movement was born, as well as women's rights, the Salvation Army, and the YMCA. The Chicago revival has so much impact that Abraham Lincoln, the, the president of the United States of America, came to visit the children's Bible studies that started it, right? Like what a massive impact that that revival had. And then, of course, the Pentecostal movement, which has had the greatest impact on modern society, was birthed from the Azusa Street Revival, right? So where there's uh, revival, you will always see a large impact on society. Number nine, there is a fresh surge in callings to ministry and mission. So we've got our nominal Christians, our lukewarm Christians, uh, all firing up, becoming passionate for the Holy Spirit, passionate for prayer, passionate for the Word of God, passionate for the things of God. And so what happens is people's sense of calling to ministry is completely, well, either they get one for the first time or it's revived. Now, this could be ministry as a vocation, as a job, as a, um, I don't like saying the word career, um, but it could be a vocation or it could be in just the greater consecration of their daily work life. But whichever way that comes, there is a surge in the number of people feeling called to ministry and mission. And number 10, God's presence in a true revival it, it is not something that you have to be like, oh, is it or isn't it? Is this a revival? Isn't it? It is unforgettable. 
it is unmistakable, and it is unmissable. When you experience God in revival, you're never the same again. It marks your life. You never forget it. And also, because of that, people will drive for hours to experience it. So I can see why in Asbury they didn't call it a revival, but they called it a renewal movement um, because it probably doesn't quite fit all the 10 markers. Uh, and look, there are there are some people that would say there are less markers, some people that would say more, but I would say all 10 of these definitely were present in all of the great revivals uh, in times gone by. So let's just recap those 10 markers. Number one, the spirit of God alone always sparks a revival. Number two, the gospel, the hardcore salvation message gospel is always preached. Number three, there is always corporate prayer. Number four, no two revivals are the same. They fit the culture and are a response to the culture of the day. Number five, nominal Christians get fired up for God and are converted. Number six, lukewarm Christians get fired up for God. Number seven, uh, unsaved people are attracted to the community and there are salvation salvations in remarkable numbers. Number eight, it always impacts society. Number nine, there is a surge in callings to ministry and mission. And number 10, uh, God's presence is in a revival is always unforgettable, unmistakable, and unmissable. It's very, very obvious. So let's have a bit of a look with what is happening at Asbury. And then I wanted to talk at the end about what do we do after a revival? Like if a revival is broken out, like what next? What then? But let's just have a look with what is happening at Asbury. So I'm going to read from the website. So as you would know, it started on February 8 with just a normal chapel service where a boy got up and started confessing. I think he was confessing his sins and the next thing, all this joyous spirit broke out and other people started praying and confessing. And anyway, the meetings never stopped. People have gone from all around the country to go and visit this uh, seminary in Kentucky. Uh, But according to their website on Thursday, Feb 23, which we had last week, they said that that marked the end of this historic multi-week gathering at Asbury Uni and Asbury Theological Seminary with the National Collegiate Day of Prayer broadcast hosted on our campus. I find it fitting, the statement said, that what started with college students in our campus ended with college students joined in prayer and worship around the country. Now, they also wanted to address, which they put on their Instagram as well, because some people were questioning, how can you stop revival, right? Like you didn't start it. How can you stop it? And this is what they've said. I've been asked if Asbury is stopping this outpouring of God's spirit and the stirring of human hearts. I have responded by pointing out that we cannot stop something we did not start, right? So tick, tick, that's correct. This was never planned. Over the last few weeks, we have been honored to steward and host services and the guests who have traveled far and wide to attend them. Tick, tick, right? For a revival, people come from afar. The trajectory of renewal meetings is always outward. Yes, correct. And that is beginning to occur. We continue to hear inspiring stories of hungry hearts setting aside daily routines and seeking Christ at schools, churches, and communities in the US and abroad. 
the effort by committed men and women on our campus to redirect energy, forsake other obligations, work tirelessly around the clock and provide single-minded labour to accommodate our students and incoming visitors has been the high point in my career. In fact, it may be the most extraordinary act of collective godliness and hospitable goodwill I have ever witnessed in my life. I am forever grateful. I am forever changed. Like I said last week, I love these Asbury guys. There is so much wisdom in the way that they've handled this. Now, another person said to me this week about the Asbury revival. It looks great and they're stopping it so that the kids can go back to their studies. Uh, And this person went on to say, I've got no problem with places kickstarting something fresh, but because it's unsustainable to live life in any kind of overdrive for long periods, it can't be seen as the ultimate place. Only a fresh booster injection to then live out a strong Christian life. Again, what great words of wisdom. That is exactly what Asbury did. We can't live in that in any, um, you know, it's unsustainable to live in that in overdrive for a long period of time. Mind you, if you remember these uh, revivals I talked about at the beginning, they went on for months and months and months, but it's not necessarily the same people all the time that were uh, were the ones leading it, obviously, were there all the time, but it wouldn't have been the same group that always uh, were rocking up to meetings um, because it is hard to sustain something like that over a long period. So what do I think? Well, I think that what we do have to be careful with is not getting caught up in revival itself, right? Like it's easy to make a God of revival. I think it's important to hunger for revival. Revival can do something in days and months that couldn't be achieved in years in people's hearts and in people's lives. But revival is not the purpose. Remember, Jesus is the purpose. Revival is just another vehicle to point people to Jesus. Now, I do want to make uh, that distinction I mentioned before. There is revival, but we also have revivalists. Now, these are people who are anointed. They are gifted to carry the burden and passion to see revival take place. They're called to carry the flame of revival, to believe for revival, to pray for revival. And usually they can sustain that over a long period of time because they're graced for it. Now, an example of someone who I, uh, who has actively seen revival over many decades, other than Billy Graham, would be Reinhard Bonnke. Now, his Christ for All Nations organization has been known worldwide for its work throughout Africa, where he has seen more than 79 million conversions to Christ. That is what I call a sustainable revival. Again, happened over a long period of time. So I do think there is definitely a distinct difference between uh, a move of God and an actual revival or an awakening. So revivals, interestingly, can be short-lived, such as Asbury, although, by the way, I would say the fruit of Asbury will be long-lived, or it can go over a long period of time, like the Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, or Reinhard Bonnke. But the big and important question, guys, is what happens after a revival ends? Because they do end. They're not sustainable for you know to be in that overdrive for a constant, huge, long period of time. So during revival, our emotions are heightened, right? We're excited about being on mission for Jesus. So what do we do after that? Well, 
I think we find the most beautiful blueprint in Acts where the early church would have faced exactly that question, right? They'd been reignited by the Holy Spirit in the upper room. Remember that in Acts where they saw over 3,000 souls saved in a day from them being up in the room together, praying together. There would have been so much joy as people experienced the forgiveness of sins in the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember, guys, people were added to their church daily. I mean, here we're excited if a few new people come in weekly. Like maybe our church is added to weekly or at least monthly. They had people coming in the droves being added to the church daily. But there was a pattern laid down in the early church that I think can help us on how we continue with the spirit of revival or after a revival has taken place. And it's found in Acts 2.42. And it says this, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing meals and to prayer. And right there we find the pattern, right? So firstly, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We need to get serious about God's word. If we experience revival or we want to have a sustained revival in our own lives, we need to get serious about God's word. We need to pay attention to it. We need to want it to convict us and lead us and shape us and guide us. We want to apply it, to live it out, to obey it. Number two, it said that they fellowshiped and shared meals together. That is the second key. We need to form relationships with other committed Christians. Close fellowship among believers in the early church was absolutely vital. You know, sometimes our friends or our family won't share our beliefs. So we need to find other people, other Christians. And, you know, I've always told you guys, I've got friends from like 20 years back of who uh, we've, you know, done life together, serving God together. Uh, And it's important to have those people in your life that you can uh, serve alongside one another and live life together. And thirdly, the third thing, they devoted themselves to the teaching, to fellowship, and finally to prayer. So we need to continue to discipline ourselves to develop an active prayer life, to, to actively carve out the time. So I think that's just a really important point to end on there that uh, we can have, you know, revival in our own life. There's a spirit of revival, but if we've experienced a revival, we need to be doing those things so that we don't lose that spark that's happened in our lives from that. Now, I wanted to end with a couple of quotes from Charles Finney, who, of course, is one of the famous revivalists of decades, years gone by. Um, So he said, a revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. I love that. It's nothing else but a new beginning of obedience to God. And he said that the way to begin revival is, and I quote, The first step is a deep repentance, a breaking down of the heart, a getting down into the dust before God with deep humility and a forsaking of sin. And you know what? When I read that, I think that is exactly what you and I need. That is exactly what this society needs right now. This is what Australia needs. This is what the world needs right now. We need deep repentance, 
a breaking down of our heart, right? Humility, getting down in the dust before God and a forsaking of our sin. That is the way to revival. So guys, I hope that that's helped you over the past couple of weeks to be able to, um, not just to discern a revival, but even to begin to hunger for that in our, in our own lives. And, you know, I know people, there's someone that I'm friends with and he's in his forties now. And I know that he has genuinely been praying for revival since he was at least 16 years of age. And so um, I know that there are people like that that have such a burden for it. So guys, I love you so much. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, If you listen to Parenthood Friday, make sure that you come along this week. Otherwise, what are we going to talk about next week? I have no idea. But I love to hear your ideas. Um, Come along, girlnextdoor.podcast, and let me know if there's anything in particular you would like me to focus on. But I have no doubt that between now and then, I will definitely find something. So until then, have a great week, and I love you guys, and I'll see you then. Bye.